The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to look here at the end of the story that we've been in for some time. If you're new to us this morning, uh, I'm not going to rehearse all the things that we've seen in the past other than about a one and a half minute uh, quick review of where we're at. We're currently in the third story of Genesis. Genesis is made up of a prologue followed by ten stories. We're in story number three. This story is made up of three scenes. It's typically referred to as the story of Noah's Ark or the story of Noah's Flood, but we know better now, right class? The story is not ultimately about Noah. It's not ultimately about the flood. It's ultimately about who? God, about his character and his plan. And in scene one, which started in chapter six, verse nine, and went all the way through the end of chapter eight, we learned a lot about his character, all different aspects of who he was. Primarily, most importantly, we learned about his faithfulness. That's the pinnacle of that story. Uh, last time we were together, two weeks ago, we moved into scene number two, which begins in chapter nine, verse one, and that's where we really start looking at the plan of God. And what we learned that time was that his plan was to, for life to continue on this world. And now today we're moving into scene number three here in chapter 9, verse 18. And we're going to see that his plan is ultimately to do away with sin. So that's a quick review of our structure of where we've been at. Let me also remind you of the four themes that we have been looking at. Can you give them to me? We have number one. Oh, fail. All right, let's try that again. The four themes, can you give them to me in order? Number one is chaos. Number two is recreation. Be bold, people. Number three is blessing. And number four is failure. Very good. Wes and Teresa, you guys get A's. Everybody else? Sorry. There we go. Failure. The four themes of Chaos, recreation, blessing, and failure as the story opens. We're in the chaos of sin. Sin has filled the world, and so God brings chaos upon the world through a flood, washes it all away. He then begins to recreate the world through Noah and those on the ark there, beginning in chapter 8. An amazing, an amazing passage looking at how he follows the creation story point by point. It's out. It's just It blows my mind even to this moment. Uh, Last time we moved into the theme of blessing as God there in chapter 9 verse 1 begins to bless Noah and the animals in many of the same ways that he had done there in creation. And now today we enter the final theme. That's the theme of failure and we're going to look at what uh, he has to say to us here. So let's read chapter 9 verses 18 to 29 then we'll go to the Lord to prayer and we'll jump right in. Moses writes that the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, 
A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Father, we are entering the very last scene this morning. It has been a fun journey. It has been one that has opened our eyes to who you are. Too many of us approach this story as we always had in life, as just seeing it about being about a, a guy in a boat with a bunch of animals, not really understanding that ultimately this is theological history. This is written to teach us about you. And I pray, Lord, that we've done that. I pray that you have taken your word and that your spirit has opened our eyes, that, that we will never, ever again read this story in the same way that we have in the past. That forever now when we come to these verses, we will see you coming through each and every aspect of what is written. That we will understand who you are, your character, that we will see your plan that you are unfolding before us here, not only in the story, but throughout Genesis. I pray, Lord, that, that we will have a much better understanding of what we've read. And this morning, that's exactly what we need, a better understanding of what we've read. This is not... An easy passage. There are many questions that we have, many things we need to understand. I pray, Lord, that you will give us clarity of mind, give us a dose of humility to recognize what we don't know. And I pray, Lord, that through this we will see that your ultimate plan is not just about what's happening here in the story, but it's going to go much further out in time to a day when you will send your son to die on the cross for sin, to do away with sin and failure once and for all. That day came, that day is still yet to come as we look forward to a future free of sin. Father, help us to see in this story that day. I pray, Father, that you will open our eyes to all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, it's a um, pretty long trip from here to Chicago. I, when people ask me about how long it is, I normally tell them it's about 16 hours. That's not exactly true. Our fastest time ever was 14 hours, 52 minutes. I was pretty happy about that. Uh, Jamie and I have a different way of looking at trips. I don't know if any of the rest of you married couples in here do. She wants to enjoy the experience. I want to complete a task. And so for me, when we're coming to a, a time to stop, like I start planning our stop or I try to start planning our stop about 20 minutes prior. Kids, get your shoes on. We're going to find an oasis, you know, one of those places that the state builds on the side of the road where everything's all in one place. I'm going to drop you guys off at the door. You go to the bathroom. Here's my lunch order. Get that. I'm going to go get gas. By the time you're done, I'll go in and go to the bathroom. By the time you're all strapped back in, I'll be back in the car and we can drive. Okay, we want pit stop fast, keep moving, get it done with as quick as possible. Who needs a scenic overlook? There are mountains everywhere in the world. You can see them later. I, it's just not the way I travel. Um, it's a long, long trip, and that's why I wanted to get done with it so quickly, because I hate being in the car for that long, and so over the years we have established all kinds of things to try to make the time pass quicker. I don't even want to guess how many hundreds of times we've played the alphabet game. Yeah, you know what that is, A, B, C, first one to Z wins, uh, I normally win, and, 
And our, our, our number one way that we pass the time is normally by listening to a book on tape. Uh, that's what we typically do. Jamie will go to the library, pick out several things, and we'll listen to it either on the way there, way back, or both. Uh, our favorite books on tape are Agatha Christie Mysteries. We love her writing, and so we normally try to find a Hercule Poirot, for all of you who are fans of Hercule Poirot, yes, uh, Hercule Poirot Mystery. It's one of her favorite characters. If you ever read The Murder on the Orient Express, that's the guy. Uh, very, very good stories. This time we listened to one called Sad Cypress, and it was absolutely excellent. The reason I like Poirot as a character is because he is fastidious and he is predictable, and yet he's brilliant in everything that he does. And he normally approaches a case or a mystery in a very uh, set way, almost the same every time. He normally begins by trying to get his mind around the details of the, of the facts of the case as much as he knows up front. He then identifies a number of questions that, if answered, will lead him to the right solution. And then normally somewhere toward the end or close to the end, he begins to put forward some scenarios that, if they work out, will show what the right answer is to the questions and how he will go about solving the case. And, of course, in the end, he always solves the case. Never have a book like that where it fails in the end. Well, I bring this up because this morning we have a mystery. Uh, here in the text that we read just a few minutes ago. There are some things here that are very unclear, things here that nobody, not me or anyone else, I don't care what they say, fully understands. And so I decided, with Poirot fresh in my mind, to use his model to approach the text this morning to see if we can figure out this mystery. But I will warn you up front of one thing that will be very, very different than all of Christie's books, is that in the end, I will not be able to give you a solution with 100% certainty. Okay? I want you to understand that off, right off the bat, and I will repeat it again in the end, that nobody, no matter what they say, knows for 100% what the answers are. However, it doesn't really matter. Because the ultimate purpose, the ultimate outcome, the ultimate end is the same regardless of the answers to the questions. The details we may not fully understand, but the end is certain and unwavering. And so we're going to look through this, try to be honest with the text, take a big dose of humility as we go to just say what we do and don't know, and then in the end we'll look and see what we can say with 100% certainty. We're going to start with just a quick walkthrough of the facts of the case. Okay? We just need to understand what is here in front of us. And so I want to walk us back through verses 18 to 29 and point out some details or some features to you that you may or may not have noticed, things that are strange in the text, things that are weird that are going to form the basis of our mystery. Let's begin in verses 18 and 19. This is sort of an introduction to this particular scene. Notice that Moses begins by reintroducing the main characters of the story. He says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now here's my question. Why does he need to reintroduce the main characters? He's already introduced them to us before. Several times since chapter 5, he has repeated to us over and over again who the sons of Noah are, yet here he is again reintroducing them in this scene. However, you see that he introduces a new character as well, someone named Canaan, who is identified as being the son of Ham. Ham is his father. Notice that in verse 19, he repeats again that these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. He wants to make this very, very clear who these people are and how they're interconnected. In verse 20, 
you then begin to see the setup of the problem here uh, that's going to form the basis of our mystery. Noah becomes a man of the soil. He starts planting things. One of the things he plants is grapes. And one of the things he makes out of those grapes is wine, red or white. We don't know. doesn't really matter. He drinks it. It's apparently good. And he gets drunk. And because he's drunk, he lays uncovered, naked, in his tent. And if this was all that was written we wouldn't really have an idea of where the failure is here because Moses doesn't comment for good or bad on what Noah has done. He simply lays it out. Here you go. This is what has transpired. And it's not until verse 22 that you begin to see what's coming out of this. In verse 22, he says that Ham, notice again, the father of Canaan, let's make this very clear, saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. This is the crime. Verse 22 is the crime in this mystery. But what should stand out to you here in verse 22 is that there's basically nothing given other than the briefest of comments that he saw the nakedness of his father and he told his brothers outside. Verse 23, the brothers respond. And what stands out here is that whereas the crime itself is passed over very quickly, the response of the brothers is given a great deal of time. Notice how clear Moses wants to be that Shem and Japheth are not involved. He says that then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. He repeats himself. He's emphatic about it. He wants you to understand that the only guilty party here is who? It's Ham. Ham is the one who's done this. Shem and Japheth are innocent. Verse 24, Noah wakes up. And it says that he knew what his youngest son had done to him. We don't know how he knew this. Did Shem and Japheth tell him, perhaps? Was there some evidence? Who knows? But he finds out what has happened, and so he issues his pronouncement. And here is where most of you who have come up to me about this passage have asked questions. He says in his pronouncement, Cursed be Ham. Right? No. Cursed be Canaan. And so the question that's been asked to me now by probably a half dozen of you over the past few weeks who wanted to get an inside track, an early look into what was coming, said, why Canaan? Ham is the one who does this. Why is Canaan cursed? Why indeed? We'll get to that in a moment. But he curses Canaan, Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, he's not done, it's not all negative. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. It's not just cursing, there's blessing involved as well on Shem and Japheth. Shem is given the preeminent blessing, the place of of honor here in the blessing. Japheth is given a secondary place but still being blessed. This is what he says, and then the story ends with this comment, one that should stand out to you if you were with us back in Genesis chapter 5. He says in verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Hold your spot there and look back at chapter 5 just for a moment, because what you see in verse 28 is the conclusion to something that was started in chapter 5. 
you were with us when we went through chapter 5, raise your hand. How many of you were here for our sermon in the genealogy? Okay, a few of you were. In chapter 5, you have this list of individuals, the first genealogy, real genealogy given here in the scriptures. And I told you at that time that a specific pattern is being followed with each and every individual. And you see a good example of this in verse 6, there in chapter 5, that when Seth had lived 105 years, gives a date, he fathered a child, in this case Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Okay, so you see the the pattern. That same pattern is going to be followed each time pretty much throughout chapter 5 with a few exceptions. And whenever we see an exception, we go, hmm, I wonder what the exception's there for. Noah was one of those exceptions in chapter 5. Look at verse 32. And Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Pause. In chapter 6, verse 1, then, we begin to pick up the story of what happens with Noah. And it's not till we get to the end of chapter 9 that we unpause and pick up the pattern again. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You see what I'm talking about, how it completes the pattern? Except something's missing. Did you pick up on what was missing from chapter 5, verse 32, over to chapter 9, verse 28. What's missing there in the pattern? Say it. What's that? No, not the kids. Other sons and daughters. He's the only one who is not said, it's not said about him that he had other sons and daughters. Out of all the people in chapter 5, as we complete it now in chapter 9, this one element is missing And the fact that it's missing stands out. It's unusual. Why? This is our case. These are the facts that are before us here as we look through chapter 9, all these little details that together seem odd the way they've been put forward. And you don't see this if you just read through it quickly as we are prone to do. You just kind of, da-da-da-da-da, this happened, okay, we move on to the next story. But Moses has written this very carefully. He wants you to see things. He wants me to see things that stand out. And so he uses various techniques to emphasize them. So we have tried to emphasize these various points, whether they're there or things that are not there, things that stand out here in the story. Now, if I'm Poirot, the next thing I do is I have to ask some questions. What questions do we need to ask of this story that will give us an understanding of what's going on in this case? Well, I've identified four questions critical questions for us that, if we can answer well, will help us understand, I think. And I'm going to give them to you. If you're writing them down, I'll try to give them to you slowly. Otherwise, just listen and uh, see what you can do with it. Question number one, why does Moses emphasize the various family relationships here in the story? Particularly at the beginning, in verses 18 and 19, Why does he go to such great lengths to emphasize things that he's already made abundantly clear? And it continues on throughout the rest of the story, but it's particularly strong up front. Why? Number two, what exactly did Ham do to Noah? If you didn't know that was a question, that's a question. Okay, You need to think about this one, and we will in just a moment. What did Ham do to Noah? Number three... What does Ham tell his brothers, and more importantly, why? Have you ever even thought about that question? Depending on what he has done in verse 22, 
Why tell his brothers anything? Even, even children who are being bad know better than to go and immediately broadcast their actions to everyone around them. So why is he going and telling his brothers? And what exactly is he telling them? And then number four, the one most of you have asked, why does Noah curse Canaan, not Ham? That's the, the one we focus on most, but it's actually the fourth one in my list of questions. Why is this happening? It stands out as weird. We need to think about it. Well, if, again, if I'm Poirot, I would put forward some scenarios to help me try to think through these questions. And here's the deal with the questions. You can't answer them one at a time. In other words, you can't say, well, I'm just going to focus on question one, and if I figure out question one, I can move on to question two. It doesn't really work like that. Because whatever answers you come up with have to make sense in the story, in the text, in the context of what's being given, and it has to provide real answers to all four questions. So you really have to give a full, complete scenario, a full, complete answer to this thing that will make sense of all of it all at once, or you just shouldn't answer it at all. Okay, So either go all in or stay out, one way or the other. I'm going to give you two different scenarios that provide answers to these questions and make sense to whatever degree you think uh, here in the context. I will tell you up front that there are more than just these two scenarios, but in my own study, I've been looking at this now for several weeks, I think the rest of the scenarios that people would put forward don't make sense, personally. Okay, it's so subjective, that's my call, but that's also my prerogative, because this is my job. So I get to do that. Uh, I don't think the rest of them make any sense. And so I'm giving you the two that make the most sense. I will also tell you up front that the first scenario I'm going to give you is the majority opinion. As you study, as you read, as you look around, as you look at articles and things that have been written on this, the majority of scholars take position one. I do not. Take position one. I encourage you to take position one because you should never go with me and things like this. Okay, I, I'm taking a minority position here because to me, scenario number two makes more sense. But you have to be the judge of this. So I'm going to present both of them to you as accurately as I can. This is the mystery. You have to try to solve it. And then in the end, we'll come back and look at the things that are not in question here. Scenario number one, and I'll answer the four questions as I work through each scenario. Scenario number one begins by believing that what Moses is doing here in this scene is helping Israel get an additional um, justification for its pending conquest of Canaan. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Israelites. And where are they at? They're in the wilderness. And what are they about to do? Or where are they headed, I should ask? To the land of Canaan. And what are they about to do when they get into the land of Canaan? To conquer it, to destroy the Canaanites. And so this position normally begins by believing that part of why Moses is writing this in this way is to provide extra justification for what Israel is about to do as they enter the land of Canaan to destroy the Canaanites. And so he emphasizes here in verse 18 that Ham is the father of Canaan because Ham's about to do something wicked, something terrible in this culture, and therefore this will be uh, just added, added uh, wood to the fire. In verse 22 then, this position understands that the crime is nothing more than Ham seeing his father naked, exactly as you would read it. He walked in the tent, 
Whether he knew his father was naked or not, I don't know. But he walks in and he sees his father naked. Now, it's clear from the overall tenor of the story that it's not just an accident that he's locked in. He's like, oh, no, sorry, you know, I didn't want to see that. It's not just that. Whatever he's doing here has a wicked intent. That he comes in and he sees his father naked. Perhaps he likes it. Perhaps he gets some thrill out of it. I don't know. But whatever the case may be, he looks at his father and then he comes out and tells his brothers. And here's a, here's a point that I can't quite make sense of in my own mind is still, why tell his brothers? Is he bragging to them about what he had seen? Is he hoping to encourage them to come in and do the same thing? Is he remorseful? I doubt he's remorseful. The story just doesn't read like that. It seems to have some kind of of a negative implication. I just can't quite make out what that would be. But whatever it is that he tells his brothers and why he tells his brothers this doesn't really matter. His brothers say no. You know what they do. Verse 23, they put the, the cloak on their back. They go, they cover their naked father when he wakes up. He finds out what's been done. Most likely Shem or Japheth tell him what it is. And so he curses Canaan. Now, pause. In this particular scenario, when you get to the question of why he curses Canaan, one of three hypotheses are normally put forward, okay? You've got to pick which one of these three you like the best. Number one, some people wonder if Canaan was actually there with him when this happened. Now, there's no clue of that in the text, no indication whatsoever that that's what is going on, but it's just a a hypothesis that perhaps Canaan is with his father when they walk in, when they see Noah naked there in his tent, perhaps. Number two, the second hypothesis, is maybe he curses Canaan because Canaan is Ham's youngest son. And that's being based off of chapter 10, verse 6. If you look over there, you see that the sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put in Canaan. So normally children are listed in their birth order, not always, but normally they are. Perhaps Canaan is his youngest son, and since Ham is the youngest son of Noah, verse 24 says, maybe it's just just that he would curse Ham's youngest son. You following what that one's trying to, to get at? I don't think that one makes any sense, but that's okay. Number three, the third hypothesis, the one I would pick if this was my position is that maybe he did curse Ham, and maybe he cursed other people in Ham's family, but Moses only records the curse of Canaan, because that's the only one that matters to him. And we've seen uh, Moses do this before. He doesn't write down every detail of everything that happens. He only writes down the things that are important to him. And so if part of what he's doing here in this scene is giving Israel an extra justification for their destruction of the Canaanites, then that kind of makes sense. That maybe, maybe the curse is bigger than what we know, but he only records this one specific curse for that purpose. And then the story ends... And there's really no reason to look at verses 28 and 29. It's just sort of a conclusion to the overall story. Now, this is the majority opinion. Again, let me emphasize, this is the one you should pick because smart people pick this one, okay? So go with this one. Go with the smart people. You'll be in the majority. But here are my own personal problems with this position and why I personally can't take it. Number one, it doesn't make sense to me to understand verses 18 and 19 as only having real significance for Israel and not for the people in the story. 
In other words, if he's only writing this to give them an extra justification for conquering the land, well, then it doesn't really matter for Noah and him, Sham, and Japheth, does it? Plus, if God has told them to destroy the Canaanites, do they really need extra justification? I don't think they need anything more. They just need to do what God has said. I think that's weird. Number two, why he tells his brothers is baffling to me in this scenario. I mean, if he goes into the tent and he sees his father naked and he enjoys it, why not slip out the back so the next time dad gets naked you can see it again? Why tell anyone? Why even put yourself in a position to be caught? It's like the bank robbers who go to the bank and they slip the note across and give me all your money and when they run out, it's like his pay stub with his name and social security number. You're asking to get caught. Why tell in a certain situation where there will be no evidence? He just is looking, right? Unless, of course, he does want his brothers to come look as well. But in this culture, that, that just seems unusual to me that he would even put himself in that position. But I could be wrong. Number three, why is there no explanation for the lack of other sons and daughters there in verses 28 and 29? It stands out that it's not there. Why isn't it there? This position has nothing to say about that. And so I'm left feeling very unsatisfied with this. It's good enough. I understand it. It's simple by far. It's probably the simplest position But it doesn't answer the questions that I feel ultimately need to be answered in a satisfactory way. I would give you a second scenario that is a minority opinion here, but to me makes a lot of sense in understanding the context of what's being written as well as answering the questions that I put to you earlier. In scenario number two, it begins with Moses emphasizing these various family relationships because they matter very, very much, as you'll see in just a moment. They don't just matter for Israel a thousand years from now. They matter for the people in the context of the story very, very much. That's because in scenario two, it understands the crime here that Ham is committing in verse 22 as being a crime of incest, of potentially being sex with his mother. Now let's just all go, ugh. Okay, just get that out of our system real quick, because it's nasty to even think about. And I don't even really know how to appropriately handle the story with you or the situation with you, but it seems to me to make the most sense. You're going, Stacey, you thought the other scenario had problems, and now you're reading incest into this? Where would you even begin to get such an idea? Well, the idea comes from the way Moses has worded the crime in verse 22. Not just the way he's worded it, but the way he's treated it. He simply says very quickly, very succinctly, that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. And the phrasing here is unique. It's not used very often in the Old Testament. Would you like to see somewhere else it's used? Used quite a lot. Hold your spot here and turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Got a whole section where it's going to be used a lot. Leviticus chapter 18. I'm not going to read this entire section, but you could read verses 6 to 18 if you wanted to. We'll just start in verse 6, read a couple, and then I'll skip down and we'll read one more. But in Leviticus 18, verse 6, Moses writes, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives. Notice what the, the subject is here. 
None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. What does that mean? Well, it's the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Uncovering the nakedness is a euphemism for incest. It's a nice way of putting it. You know what euphemisms are, right? It's a nice way of describing what's going on here. Keep reading. Uh, Verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Why? It's your father's nakedness. Her nakedness belongs to him. And if you uncover that, it's like uncovering his. It's heinous. Don't do it. He keeps going through this section with all these various family relationships. Look down at verse 16, if you will, just again as another quick example. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Why? It's your brother's nakedness. It belongs to him. And so if you uncover the nakedness of your brother, it's a euphemistic way for saying that you slept with your brother's wife. It's a vile thing. You say, well, this is talking about uncovering nakedness. Not really, not really seeing it. Okay, you're right. Look at Leviticus 20. Because the phrases are used interchangeably by Moses. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17. says, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. You see how the phrases were used interchangeably? This is the type of phrase that we see used over here in Genesis chapter 9. That he saw his father's nakedness in this position. The scenario understands that to be a euphemism for incest. A, a, a detestable, detestable act. But that at least provides some explanation, perhaps, for some of the other features that we see in the story. Because one of the problems with incest being the scenario versus just seeing is that there's evidence. Whether she's a willing participant or an unwilling participant, there's evidence. And so it makes sense, at least, why he might come out and tell his brothers, perhaps trying to get them to be involved as well so that he doesn't bear the blame alone. And it perhaps explains why Noah curses Canaan. Because perhaps, please emphasize, I am stressing the word perhaps, Canaan is the child born out of this relationship. That would explain why, in verses 18 and 19, Moses feels compelled to continue explaining who Noah's children, who they are, and whose child, him, wait, who, who, who's, whatever, I can't say it. You know what I'm trying to say. It's hard to do this. But in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Understand that that's it. Ham is the father of Canaan. These three are the sons of Noah. He emphasizes again in verse 19. And from these, the people of the whole earth spread. When verse 22 comes around and Ham comes on the scene to commit this act, he feels the need to emphasize again that he is the father of Canaan. And so this this argument to me makes quite a bit of sense. It also makes sense as you see um, you see down in verse 24, no, uh, 25, in the curse that Noah gives, 
He says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And I understand that the word brothers has a very broad meaning. Sometimes we talk about each other as being brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in a family situation that makes sense. But he specifically says, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And then in the blessing to the other two boys, what does he tell them? May Canaan be your servant. May Canaan be your servant. He specifically says it to each one. They may, in fact, be brothers. And this also may explain, then, in the end, verses 28 and 29, why Noah has no more children with his wife. At least provides an understanding that might make sense within the overall context that perhaps after this deed, again, whether it was consensual or not, it doesn't really matter. She's damaged goods now, perhaps, to Noah. Perhaps, emphasize that again. And so, therefore, they are done with raising children. Now, please understand, these are two possible scenarios to this mystery. And there are others. I just don't think they bear enough weight to be considered. Ultimately, I think one of these two makes the most sense, and you have to choose whichever one you want, whichever one is the most compelling to you to make sense of this story. But whichever one you choose the ultimate outcome of the story doesn't change. Because certain things are highlighted through the story, whichever path you choose to get to it. Either way, immediately here in the story, Canaan is a problem. And the people of Canaan, which will be developed a little bit in chapter 10, will be a problem for Israel for some time. Ultimately, though, there's larger issues at stake here. Because ultimately we see that even after all that God has done, what do we still have in this world? Sin. Failure. God destroyed the world because of sin. He he washed it all away with a flood. In his grace, he saves Noah and his family. And remember, remember that his family is never spoken of in the story as being righteous like he was. But God spares them all in grace to Noah. But he saves this family. He recreates the world through them and through the animals. And yet, even in this new world, failure is still present. Sin is still present. Man is still evil. Now, did this come as a surprise to God? No. You look back over real quick at chapter 8, verse 21. Noah has just offered an offering to the Lord And verse 21 says that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? Because the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. He knows who man is. He knows how wicked man is in the core. That the flood has not provided a final solution to sin. It has wiped it away but it has not taken it away in man's heart. Which tells us then that a final solution is yet to come. And you get a very brief but very important glimpse of this even here in this story. I mean, no matter how dark you see this story being, I mean, I've presented to you a very dark situation that's being described here. But in the midst of this darkness, there is one tiny glimmer of light that comes in a kind of unexpected place. You see it here in verse 26. In giving, 
the preeminent blessing to Shem. May the Lord, or blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Again, it's so quick. But as you stop and realize what's happening in the story and what's happening in the larger story of Genesis, you begin to realize that it's, it's to Shem that our story is about to turn. Because it's through Shem, we're going to get to Abraham. It's through Shem, we'll get to Judah. It's through Shem, we'll get to David. And ultimately, it's through Shem that we get to Christ. And it's through Christ that we find the only thing that gives a real and final solution to sin. Because no judgment will ever remove it from our hearts. We know that, parents, right? We can, we can discipline our kids all day long and it doesn't change their heart. It might change their actions. It might change their behaviors. But it never changes the heart. This judgment hasn't changed the heart of man. Something still needs to happen to cause that. And it will come through this line that Moses has been following since the beginning. From Adam to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Judah, as we get out of Genesis and into the Old Testament, to David, and finally to the New Testament, to Christ. As he dies on the cross, he gives us that solution. Which means that for us, as we are still prone to failure, right? This, this story, these themes of chaos, recreation, blessing, and failure, this, this isn't just a story in Genesis. It's our story. As we were in the chaos of sin and through the gospel we've been recreated, we have all the blessings in Christ and yet we still fell. Here we are as failures, as sinners, always needing to come back to the cross. But we have a promise, a hope, that one day that failure will be done away with forevermore. And every time we sin, Every time we fail, every time we find ourselves submerged in the darkness, we just simply need to remember that Christ is the light, the only one who can help us. And we constantly run back to him. That's what we've learned in this story, is that God is the kind of God who is so faithful. He provides, he's powerful. We have seen his character on full display. We've seen his plan that he wants life to thrive on this earth. Ultimately, he wants us to experience eternal life. But sin is the problem that is a nagging one. And though it has marred his creation, he will overcome it through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the Noah's Ark story. The Noah's flood story. And that's why we should never think of it as being about Noah or about his flood ever again. Pray. Lord Jesus, I, I'm just amazed by your word. You, you have arranged these things in such a way to draw our attention constantly back to the fact that you have had a plan that has been at work since before the foundation of the world. And though man has marred that with sin, though we have come into this world and have rebelled against you, your plan remains. And you will see it through to the very end. And so I pray, Father, that you will help us to remember that. And in the midst of our own failures, in the midst of our own sins, to be constantly looking to Jesus, the only one who provides a full and final solution to it. 
Lord, if there are any in here today who do not know you as Savior, I pray that they will understand their own darkness. The fact that they are currently separated from you, that they do not know you, that they are walking in this darkness, and I pray that you will draw them to yourself through the death of Jesus, through what they've heard today. And for those of us in here who do know you, it's so easy for us to become discouraged. So easy for us to focus on ourselves, even though we know that the gospel teaches us that our salvation isn't about us, it's ultimately about what Christ has done. We still struggle to remember that on a day to day basis. I pray, Lord, that you will remind us today that the final solution to our sin will never be found in our own abilities, our own faithfulness, our own actions. It's found in Jesus and Him alone. May we rest in Him. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time in it today, and I ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen.